So today for our sermon, we're actually finishing off our series. We've been in Genesis for, for quite a while now, and now we've finally reached the end. Uh, and so we'll be picking up with a new series next week. But today we're finishing off Genesis, and we're going to be taking a look at Joseph and really the story of Joseph. And probably it's one that's rather familiar to us, uh, but maybe for some of us it's new. But we're going to sort of read through. I'll paraphrase certain points. I'll sort of summarize certain parts. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture as it is, so we're not going to quite read through the whole story, but I'll fill in all the gaps. But ultimately what we're going to see in this story of Joseph is that God brings good even out of the bad, right? What we're going to see with Joseph, and if you know the story, you sort of know how this goes, but uh, a lot of unpleasant things happen to him, a lot of bad stuff. And yet in the end, God uses that bad stuff to bring about this wondrous and glorious good as an end result. And what we're going to talk about is this is sort of a frequent pattern of how God operates, that he is just that amazing, that wonderful, that he can even take the bad stuff that happens in life. We live in a broken, fallen world where, where sin happens, bad stuff happens, and yet God can take that and use it and still work it all out for good for his people. And we see that, of course, in Joseph's life. So let's really dive right in and read all about Joseph. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 37. You can follow along with me as you'd like. And we're going to be reading here verses 1 through 36. So again, Genesis 37 verses 1 through 36. And it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now as we're going to see Joseph and his, his brothers, they don't really get along so well, right? And this is sort of some of the beginnings of that, though there's more to it. But you can imagine, you know, if, if you know, you have a brother and he's just sort of always ratting you out to mom and dad, maybe you're not going to be on the best of terms with your brothers. So that's sort of a little bit of what's going on here, you know, of Joseph's, you know, telling our dad that we're not doing a good job or this or that. But of course, sort of the, the broken relationship between Joseph and his brothers, it sort of deepens. There are more reasons, and we're sort of given those reasons here coming up. So we read on, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Right, so Israel, Jacob, maybe doesn't get exactly like father of the year award. He plays favorites quite a bit, and it's sort of like, oh, Joseph, you know, you're my fave. These other sons of mine, they're okay, but you're the real deal. And just to sort of make this oh so clear, he gives him this wonderful, ornate, beautiful robe. And, you know, what did the other brothers get? You know, nothing. And so what is sort of the other brother's response? Not that this is the response they should have, but you can sort of understand that they might respond this way, right? It says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him, right? So they become sort of bitter, you know, oh, our dad loves Joseph and he doesn't care about us. And the response is sort of this bitter hatred for their brother. So... Uh, we read on, though, and you can imagine here there are even more reasons sort of for their dislike or hatred for their brother, and we see this coming up. So verse 5, Joseph had a dream. 
right? The Lord gives him this dream, and, and this is a dream that indeed does come to fruition by the end of this story, right? So Joseph had a dream, and when he, had told, uh, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf arose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it, right? His brothers get what's going on here and they're saying, oh, so what, you're, you know, you're going to rule over us and we're just going to bow down to you? They're not exactly loving that dream and its meaning and it sort of just causes all the more hatred on their part. But of course, this is a dream from the Lord and it does come to fruition by the end, of course, Joseph is uh, really second in command, second only to Pharaoh and all of Egypt and certainly has authority over his whole family, parents included. But reading on here, right, uh, verse 8, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Apparently he thought pretty much the same dream and same sort of meaning. If he tells them again, they're going to love him all the more for it, right? So he has this other dream. He told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars, right? That's sort of mom and dad and you guys, my brothers, right? Uh, that's the symbolism there. We're bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Right, so already his brothers, they don't exactly love him. You know, Joseph's not exactly, you know, their, their best friend. They don't exactly get along so great. So eventually they sort of figure, well, maybe there's some way we can kind of deal with this Joseph guy and get rid of him. And the opportunity presents itself a little bit. So we see this here now reading on verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing the flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him, right? They kind of figure, oh, this is our chance, right? You know, dad's not around. He's not going to see what happens. We can get rid of him. We can kill him, and then we'll be done with this dreamer guy, Joseph, right? So they say, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands, right? At least Reuben's sort of not so terrible and figures, hey, you know, he's our brother. Let's not, let's not kill him. And so he sort of puts this plan together, right? When Reuben heard this, he tried to res rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. He said, don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Now, at this point, probably the brothers are thinking, yeah, he'll still die that way. You sort of toss him into a cistern. He can't get out. What's going to happen over time? He'll still die. And then that way, we sort of feel at least like we didn't directly kill him in the sense of like kill him with a sword or so forth. Maybe they'll feel a little bit better about it. So, okay, you know, they go along with this. 
right? Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So Reuben has the plan of, you know, I'm going to come back. I'll rescue him out of this cistern, and it'll all be good. But the other brothers sort of have a different plan in mind. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed, right? Hey, why not make a buck off of it, right? If you're going to try to get rid of your brother, you might as well make some money in the process. Hey, perfect plan. His brothers agreed, right? So when the Midianite merchants, and here, you know, you notice it goes from Ishmaelites to Midianites. This would certainly have been, have been likely in, in the ancient world and in, in this sort of culture that probably this is a mixed caravan of some Ishmaelites, some Midianites, and they're there together. And so you could sort of say, well, they're Ishmaelites, they're Midianites, it's sort of this mixed group of the two. And so that's probably uh, how that's best reconciled. So. When the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, right, he had the plan to go and get him back and he'd be okay and fine, right, but that's not what happens. He gets there, there's no Joseph, so what? He tore his clothes, right, in mourning. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in, his in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has, tr has surely been torn to pieces, right? So the brothers figure, well, you know, we got to kind of cover up what we did. What's the best plan? Well, we'll just sort of, you know, make it look like some, you know, ferocious animal has attacked him and eaten him and we'll be all good. And so they do. They fool their father, right? So then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And here, instead of just continuing to read on, and we'd sort of spend all day reading this story, there's quite a lot of chapters, I'll kind of summarize uh, where this goes from here. So already, we're kind of establishing, remember sort of the big idea that God brings good out of bad. We're sort of establishing all the bad stuff that happens to Joseph here. But ultimately, as we're gonna see, God uses it for good. So at this point, he's sold into slavery, right? When they sold him to, to the caravan there, that's effectively what's happening. Now he's the slave, so he goes with them on the caravan trip, right, all the way to Egypt, and then they sell him naturally, you know, um, and he winds up in Potiphar's house. And there are things actually don't go oh so terribly. In a sense, whatever he sort of puts his hand to, God blesses. And Potiphar re realizes this and figures, I'm going to put you in charge of everything in my household. Uh, so he does. 
But, you know, Potiphar's wife says, you know, Joseph, you're kind of a looker. And why don't you sort of come over here to my bed and, you know, do what grown-ups and such do, you know. Um, and uh, Joseph says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. By no means, you know, I, I'm not going to sleep with my master's wife. That's a no-no. Uh, and so he, he, he says no. And she sort of repeatedly makes a pass at him. Uh, and he continues to say no. And ultimately, she sort of makes one more pass at him. And he, like, books it out of there. Good idea. Just sort of get out. Uh, but what does the wife wind up doing? She decides, you know, I'm just going to claim that Joseph really made a pass at me, his master's wife, and I screamed, and then he fled. And so this is the story she tells to the servants in the household and to her husband. Uh, and what does her husband wind up doing? You know, he's obviously not so happy with the story that he's been told and figures, I'm going to throw Joseph in jail, in prison. And so that's what happens. So it's just sort of one bad thing after another, you know, as if it's not enough to get sold into slavery. Well, then ultimately he winds up here in, in prison, you know, even worse. But of course, God is going to use all of this and sort of to continue the narrative. I'm not going to go back to reading the passage. I'll sort of continue to summarize. What winds up happening is at some point while he's there in prison, uh, Pharaoh winds up not so happy with his chief cupbearer and chief baker. Uh, you can sort of piece together that probably what's happened, it just sort of says generally that they committed some sort of offense, that, that he was upset with them, but probably what's happened is there's some sort of attempt on Pharaoh's life, some sort of poisoning attempt, and so who are the main, you know, likely suspects? Well, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and so their heads are on the line, and they wind up having these dreams while they're there in prison, and there's Joseph, and and not only does Joseph have dreams, but he also interprets them as well. And so he gives the interpretation of the two dreams and sort of to summarize it, it's, hey, chief cupbearer, you're going to be restored. It's going to go well for you. It's going to be great. Um, and for you, chief baker, not so well. Basically, to put it simply, you'll be executed. And sure enough, that's what comes to fruition. Uh, and sort of, you know, chief cupbearer, he kind of forgets all about this, goes about his business for a little while. And then now this is where we come to our next passage, and this is chapter 41 in Genesis, starting right there at verse 1, and I'll read it for us. So when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Right? So Pharaoh has these dreams. What, what is this all about? He's sort of troubled by it, concerned, brings all the people that he thinks might be able to interpret these things, right? the magicians, the wise men from all over Egypt. What does it mean? And they have no idea. They can't interpret it. Right? But here's where the cupbearer comes in, the chief cupbearer. It says, reading on verse 9, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. 
Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said that you said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And I love that response, right? You know, I can't do it, thinking on his own power and ability, he, he can't do that. But of course, God most certainly can and can use him in that process. So God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first, but even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. So here Joseph gives his response, right? The interpretation of the dreams. It says, that Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one in the same, right? They're basically the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one in the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, in whom, uh, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Right, so sort of to, to summarize that whole passage that I just read, Joseph's there in prison, and all this terrible stuff has happened to him, right? But God has a plan. He's using even these terrible things ultimately for good, for good for Joseph, for good for his brothers, his father, the whole family, for good for all of Egypt and all of the, the peoples around as well, that whole uh, part of the ancient Near East. Ultimately, God has this plan to bring good out of it. And so he's there, right? He, he interprets these dreams. And because of that, uh, when Pharaoh has his dreams, uh, his chief cupbearer remembers, oh, yes, I remember this guy back when I was in prison, he can interpret them. So he brings them, calls them, he gives the interpretation of the dream. It's going to be seven great years of, of great abundance, great harvest, right? But then seven years of famine to follow, right? And if, if no plan had been made, if this dream hadn't been interpreted, if things had just gone normally, you could look at it and say, you know, what, what would, it, would have happened? People would have enjoyed the seven years of abundance, but they wouldn't have well prepared for seven long years of severe famine. And when the famine came, a great host of people would would have perished, would have starved to death in Egypt, but also, of course, elsewhere, the ancient Near East, that whole region, certainly, and that would have included Joseph himself. If none of this had happened and he had still been living back with his, his family, right, hadn't been sold into slavery here, he, his brothers, his father, the whole household, they would have starved there, right? There would have been all sorts of, of negative consequences that would have come about as a result of this famine, but that's not what happens, right? God orchestrates this all. He allows these terrible things to happen. Joseph getting sold into slavery, winding up then getting sent to prison, unjustly so, so that he's in the right place, of course, to give this interpretation, to be put in charge of all of Egypt, and to prepare Egypt, really, for these years of famine, to provide food for Egypt and all the people around for the time of this famine. 
And I want to jump to one last verse here in Genesis. We also have one from, from Romans as well, but I want to read this last passage in Genesis. And right toward the end, Genesis chapter 50, and it's verses 15 through 21. And I'll read it for us. Actually, before I get here, I'm, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. I do want to, to give a little bit of a continuation of this story um, that we sort of left off with here in, in, in the last passage that, that we read. So, of course, right, Joseph sort of plans everything well for, for this famine. Uh, but now I want to talk specifically about his brothers, his father, sort of what happens there. I'm going to kind of give it in short form because it's a long story. Uh, but sort of to make a long story short, of course, his brothers, his father, the whole household, they're back in the land of Canaan. Uh, the famine hits there as well. They're starving. There's no more food left, right? So what are they left to do? They realize, well, we've heard there's still food. We've sort of caught word of it, caught wind of it, that there's food in Egypt. And so the brothers, right, they wind up sort of heading over to Egypt to get food. Uh, Joseph recognizes them, right, but he doesn't let them know that he recognizes them. He sort of puts them through the ringer a little bit, but I'll sort of gloss through that a little. Ultimately, the result is, right, he provides them with the food that they need. And ultimately, he winds up saying, hey, whole family, why don't you come here to Egypt? You'll get the best of the land, right, the, the best land uh, for, for, for crops, certainly, but also for, uh, for shepherding as well as they did, uh, of course, as, as Israel and his family did. And so they're given the best of the land and they wind up thriving there in Egypt uh, for generations upon generations. And then we know how that sort of continues. They wind up enslaved and so forth and so on. And then we get to Moses, but that's sort of for another time. But, but the point is here, we see a great provision for really a whole host of people, all of Egypt, right? For, for Joseph, of course, as well, but even for his whole household, for his father, for his brothers. If this hadn't taken place, they would have starved over in Canaan uh, when the famine came, but God used this to provide for, for Jacob, for his sons, for the whole family there as well. But now I want to get here to chapter 50. There at this point now for chapter 50, they're now in Egypt. Uh, Jacob winds up, up dying. He winds up passing away, and sort of this is now where we pick up. This is Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Right? They're sort of thinking, maybe he's just been nice to us for the sake of our father. Right? Doesn't want to rock the boat for his dad. But now, hey, dad's gone. Maybe he's going to really let us have it now, now that dad's gone and, and he'll punish us. So they sort of have this little scheme. They'll, they'll make up this little lie that'll sort of cover them and they'll, they'll be okay. That's sort of their plan, right? It says, verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. We have no evidence that he really did do this. This is sort of, sort of just their lie and their scheme here to look out for themselves, right? Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers in their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And I really want to zero in there uh, on that statement 
um, at, in verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, right? What's he saying? He's saying, you did this evil thing, and that was your intent. You intended evil in it, right? You did this terrible thing, this bad stuff happened to me, and it was at your hands, and yet God allowed that to happen ultimately to be able to use that and work that ultimately for this wondrous good, which as Joseph says here, what is that? There's more good that comes about as a result of it, but certainly part of it is to bring it about that many people should be kept alive today as they are. Right? Joseph recognizes that God was sort of at work in all of this. Not that God desired for Joseph's brothers to do a terrible thing to their brother, sell him into slavery. Not that God delights in the fact that he was wrongfully accused of, of making a pass at Potiphar's wife and winding up in prison. But we live in a broken, fallen world and God allowed those sinful things to take place. And he did that. He allowed those things to take place with the plan of ultimately using that, leveraging that, and working it all ultimately for great and wonderful good so that the people of Egypt wouldn't perish as a part of this seven-year famine so that uh, Joseph himself indeed would be blessed abundantly. He's second in Egypt, right? That's not a bad gig to have, to be number two, second only to Pharaoh, to, to bring about great blessing for Joseph. Uh, but also, of course, to provide for Jacob, all of his sons. In a sense, you can even think of it not just to provide for them, but to, to provide for their uh, heritage and lineage throughout the years, year after year, generation after generation, right? We have to recognize if this provision hadn't been made, if God hadn't allowed these things to come to pass and then ultimately work this for wondrous good to make provision during this famine, Think about back, we've sort of talked about this earlier in Genesis, but think about all those promises that were a part of the Abrahamic covenant, right? That the people of Israel were to be made into this great nation. Well, how's that going to come to pass if they all perished because of this famine? Jacob, all of the sons, all of their sons, the whole family, the whole line, what if they all perish? How does that promise come to fruition? And not just that they'd be made into a great nation, but that they'd possess the land of Canaan, that promised land. Right? And not only that, but that kings would come from them. And not only that, but that ultimately there'd be this seed, this one who would come from this line, Christ himself, right? And it's in him that all nations would be blessed through his atoning work on the cross, of course. Right? And this is all, of course, through this family line, through the descent, uh, of course, uh, coming from, from Jacob himself. And again, if this provision isn't made, that whole lineage, it, it perishes. And so part of what's in view here isn't just, it might seem sort of more immediately obvious that, oh, we think, you know, well, what's the good that comes about here? Well, Joseph winds up, uh, of course, in this wonderful position, second uh, in command in all of Egypt. That's some of the good that comes from it. And sparing all the people who would have otherwise perished and starved to death because of this famine. Certainly Joseph's whole family, his brothers, his father, and the people of Egypt. And, and it's easy to see that, but I think we sort of lose sight of the big picture view of, of ultimately how God's working through all of redemptive history. And that part of what God has in mind here is, is to keep this family alive, this family line alive, Jacob, his descendants, to continue on generation after generation, ultimately that all of these wonderful promises might be fulfilled, these promises of the Abrahamic covenant, and most centrally the culminating part of that is of course Christ himself and the promise of him and the blessing that he would bring through the atonement of sin, of course, and what he does uh, on the cross. And so all of that is in view as we think of what is the good that God brings about all of this, in the midst of all of this bad that took place in Joseph's life, being slow, sold into slavery, winding up unjust 
justly so in prison, it's not just the good of, well, sparing the lives of, of the people who would have died as a result of the famine, but we have to have the bigger picture of recognizing that he spares this family, right, Jacob and his whole family, for a bigger purpose, for something even grander. And, of course, that's ultimately the coming of Christ in the line of, of course, Israel himself and in the line of David and to bring that to fruition. And so that's part of the wondrous good that God ultimately brings about through the bad that happens here to Joseph. And we see this, we see it not just in this story, this sort of pattern of even when bad stuff happens, well, God is so great and so wonderful that he can take that bad and still he's able to work it for wondrous and glorious good. Uh, we see that not just in this story, but we're actually told in Romans 8.28, in fact, I'm sure a favorite verse of many here, favorite verse of many followers of the Lord, we're told that for those who belong to the Lord, I'll read this for, verse for us, but I'm sort of paraphrasing it here, for those who belong to the Lord, for those who are truly His, that effectively God is working everything, not just the good stuff in life that happens, but even the bad stuff, like the bad stuff that happened to Joseph here, God is working everything for good for his people. And so we see that certainly lived out here in the life of Joseph, but it's not just that, oh, it happened that one time in Joseph's life, but when bad stuff happens to me, is God gonna work that for good for me? And the answer is yes, indeed, he promises that. And I'll read this passage, this verse, Romans 8, 28. Paul writing here to the Romans, and he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? Those who, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, right? This isn't a promise that for every person, period, end of story, that God's gonna work everything for good, right? Those who reject the Lord, those who refuse to repent and trust in him, there's no promise for them that everything's gonna work for good for them, but for those who truly do belong to the Lord, who've given their lives to God, who've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, for those who truly love God, for those who are truly his, all things work together for good. And of course, it's God who's orchestrating this. So in a sense, it's God who is working everything out for good for his people. Not just one time in history for Joseph, but in everything, in every situation, in the good, in the bad, God is working it all out for good for his people. And that's a great and grand and wondrous promise for us because we know in life we're going to go through times that are tough. Hopefully, you know, what happened to Joseph doesn't happen to you and one of your siblings sort of sells you into slavery and then you wind up in a prison and so forth and so on. But the reality is, you know, we live in a broken, fallen world and bad stuff's going to happen. Even if things are sort of nice and cozy and easy in life right now, the reality is, is some sort of trial or tough time is, is around the corner. It's going to be coming at some point. Uh, and so this is something that we need to really remember. And in fact, maybe for some of us here, we're going through one of those particularly rough times in life. There's some sort of trial. Life's been hard. Things are just tough. Maybe it's family issues or health issues, financial issues, whatever it might be. Maybe you're just going through one of those tough times. And what God is saying to us in those times, he's saying, trust me, right? I am a God who works everything, even this bad stuff, whatever trial you're going through, it's easy in the midst of it to sort of lose sight of any sort of bigger picture and to get up, uh, get caught up on all of the negative that's happening right then and there in that moment. But God's saying, there's a bigger picture. I'm sovereign over it all. I'm in control of it all. And I have promised to work out everything, even the worst of the worst, I've promised to work it all out ultimately for good for my people. And you are my people. And I promise to work it all out for good for you. 
And so that's what I, I really want our application to be, is really to, to know, to understand that wondrous biblical truth that God works everything out, even the worst of the worst, even the tough stuff that happens to Joseph here, God works everything out ultimately for good for his people. He brings good out of bad for his people. And that is certainly a promise from the Lord that that is the way he operates. And I want us to remember that and really take that to heart and especially remember it when we're going through the tough times. And then in the midst of those tough times and those trials, to really find this promise from the Lord to be a source of comfort and peace in the midst of it. I do think it's easy in the tough times to sort of get caught up in the, the here and the now and all of the negative things and lose sight of the positive or lose sight of the bigger picture of what God might be doing in and through that situation. Instead, all we see is sort of what's right before us immediately, what's happening in that moment, uh, and sort of, you know, we struggle with that. And really what God wants for us is to remember this promise from him, to find comfort and peace and solace in that promise. And in the midst of that, then just to trust God, even if we don't see what he's doing in the midst of it, and in all likelihood, we're not going to see what he's doing in the midst of it. We may not see sort of the good that he intends to bring out of that. Maybe it's spiritual good to draw us closer to himself into a, a closer walk with him that we might live all the more obediently and faithfully and experience all the more joy in our walk with the Lord. It might be something else, but we, we likely won't see the good that God intends to bring out of it when we're in the midst of it. But we need to just trust God, trust that he is good, trust that he has a good and wondrous and perfect plan, and that plan ultimately involves our good. And we ought to trust him, trust his plan, and in the midst of it all, just be faithful to him. And so let's certainly live that out. Let's learn from Joseph and the wondrous good that God brought out of that bad that happened in his life. Let's trust the Lord, even in the tough times, knowing that he's at work in all of it and working it all ultimately for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are an amazing God. There is surely nothing you cannot do. And even in the tough times in life, thinking of Joseph and his story and all of the awful things that happened to him, to be sold by his brothers, betrayed by them, sold into slavery, taken to a foreign land, and if that weren't enough, then to be betrayed by his master's wife and to be unjustly thrown into prison. It would be easy in a situation like that to lose hope, to wonder what is God doing in the midst of this and feel like nothing good could surely come out of it. And yet, Lord, you used it. You are at work in the midst of it all and you worked it all for wondrous, glorious good to bless Joseph and, and lift him up to a high place, second in command in Egypt, to bless him, bless his family. You used it to provide for his brothers, his father, for their descendants. And so through the, that provision, Lord, ultimately to continue the line of Israel ultimately to fulfill all of your covenantal promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Lord, and of course finding its culmination in Christ. So we thank you for that wondrous provision and how you worked that all out for good and certainly used it for good also just to provide for all the people there in Egypt, the surrounding lands who would have perished otherwise when the famine came. And so you used all of that bad ultimately for good and you are just that 
type of an amazing God that can do such a thing. And you surely promise to those of us who really belong to you, who are truly yours, Lord, as we read in Romans 8.28, that you work everything out, even the, the worst stuff in life, Lord, that you work that ultimately for good for your people. And maybe it's tough to see how you're going to do that when we're in the midst of trials in life, but it's surely a promise from you that we ought to cling to. Even when we don't see how you're at work, Lord, may we know that you are a God who is good and brings good out of bad. May we entrust ourselves to you and be faithful to you, even in the trials of life, and may you work it all out for good, for your people and for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.